Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, this is going to be a little bit lecturish, because I'm going to read this little essay out, but I shall make comments as I go along. <clears throat> uh, in this way, I don't end a talk thinking, now that's what I should have said, and I've forgotten to say that. So, uh, just going through this whole business of what faith is, in our practice. So the first thing is to clarify a very common confusion, which is to think that faith has something to do with belief. <clears throat> so, you know, in certain religious circles anyway, when they say, what's your faith? They actually also mean, what do you believe in? Yeah? And... Um, Whatever the Buddha, whenever the Buddha's teaching, he's always coming from a place of uh, this is what I offer you as a theory, and it's for you to find out whether it's true or not. One of his more uh, delightful sayings, he tells his uh, disciples not to accept something just because it's me, your teacher, but test it like a goldsmith tests gold by scratching it and burning it and whatever goldsmiths do <laughs> to test a piece of metal. Not out of respect for him as a teacher. Then there's the very famous Kalama Sutta. So these people, the Kalamas, who presumably were in a calamity, sorry about that, <laughs> um, <clears throat> where one of these people, one of the regular receivers of various teachers who were just wandering through India and still do, of course. And it leads to their confusion. So when he arrives, of course, they say to him, listen, you know, this teacher comes and says this, this teacher comes and says that, we're literally confused, what should we do? So this is his declaration of um, free thought, you might say. So he says, do not believe in anything simply because you've heard it. Yeah, for these days, Reddit, Iran, WMDs. <laughs> Simply because it's a tradition handed down for many generations. So remember that um, as children we're inculcated, we're, we're given the teaching. And there's, um, when we believe something, remember, there comes with it a subtle identity. I am. This is why opinions, are, opinions and views are so tenacious because when you have to change your opinion, you have to change yourself. Now if you say, well, I always vote Labour, I am a socialist, it's very difficult for you to say, well, I'm now a conservative. <laughs> it, it, there's too much of a change, it's schizophrenic. 
So this is the problem with belief. You identify with it. It's you, I am. Yeah? And we'll come across this when people might say things like, I am a Buddhist, and the problems that may come because of that. Then there's simply because, don't believe anything, simply because it is spoken or rumoured by many. So if you remember Gandhi who said that truth can be in a minority of one. And um, we take comfort in that. If I say I believe in something and then I can point to 100, 1,000, 1 million people who believe the same, I must be right. All these people can't be stupid. And I'm not. (laughs) So there's a certain comfort in that. And that's why uh, religions which convert have that underground, sorry, um, uh, subliminal, subliminal fear, you see, of losing membership. When you lose membership of of a religion or a group which converts, it means somebody who was once with you who believed as you believe now doesn't. And that's frightening. One of the attributes of a sect is that they form real barriers between them and us. And anybody who moves towards them undergoes certain retrainings and punishments. Do not believe anything simply because it is found in your religious books. Well, these days, of course, we have our fundamentalists taking the word as gospel, unable to see beyond the word, uh, taking old interpretations. There are three sources of knowledge, you might say, three sources. The first one is tradition. It's what's been written in the past. Uh, we can say that this is a pre-modern society. So med- the medieval ages would have been pre-modern. It would have taken the gospel as gospel. And that was it. Everything had to make sense to the gospel or it was irrational. It was untrue. Then there was the period where that was pushed aside, mainly begun by Descartes, the philosopher, who wanted to start all over again. And we ended up by coming to the truth through rationality, through, through discourse. And the great product of that is the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, because that is something thought out by human beings amongst themselves, in which no sacred text, no authority, is pointed to outside human beings. This, of course led us eventually to communism, Nazism. <laughs> and that's the problem with rationality. And the loss of that, the loss of that confidence has led us to another, another, um, another uh, base for knowledge, and that's ourselves. So that's the postmodern. I'm right, what's right for me is right for me. Might not be right for you, sorry, but it's right for me. So then we move into relativity. So one of the things that the Buddha says when he's actually uh, saying how we should think about or how we should tackle a problem that comes up, 
Interestingly enough, he points to these three areas of knowledge. He says, first of all, look at the scriptures, see what's been written about your, your problem. Then uh, talk about it amongst yourselves and amongst those people amongst whom you consider to be wise. And then he says, be a lamp, be a light unto yourself. So somehow, whatever truth is, whatever we think truth is, we have to, as, we have to, as it were, take these three things into consideration. Even here, see, the last one is, do not believe anything simply on the authority of your teachers and elders. And then he goes on to say, when you've tried it out for yourself, and if it works for you, then, and you see it's wholesome, and you see it does you good, and the others good, for me, for you, and for both of us, then continue that practice. So the whole teaching that he's putting forward to us is one of experimentation. We've got to dis- we've got to experiment with it to see if it's right for us. If we uh, take, if we just take what a teacher says, then it leads to this sort of gullibility, a blindness, doesn't it? You just you just believe it because. Well, that's what the teacher said. And if that teacher turns out to be a rogue, heaven forbid, uh, is a lot of suffering. I'm just thinking now of certain occasions where, you know, a teacher in the Buddhist tradition has turned out to do something very immoral. And it's really shaken all the people who were looking up to that teacher. It's a real thump and it's, some of them just you know, lose complete faith in the whole teachings because they think, well, if, it, if, that what, if that's what the teaching does, produces this sort of person, there must be something wrong. So whatever, uh, whatever truth is, it has to be experimented by us. The path is trod by us alone. The problem with belief is that it makes us feel warm, it makes us feel comfortable, makes us feel protected, makes us feel secure. I believe in this. See? But it doesn't liberate us. Because liberation comes uh, by way of something which is beyond belief systems. The Buddha talks about the end of language. Language only takes you so far. Then there's something which is more subtle more than that and a belief necessarily must be uh, must be expressed as a concept as an idea so if you ever think if you ever hear somebody trying to describe nibbana run for it <laughs> so whatever faith is it's um, it's not tr- it's not belief right you have to make that very clear in your minds because the distinction is very subtle sometimes very subtle now, if, uh, if, if belief is more of a subtle en- uh, enemy, then the, uh, the, the more obvious one is doubt. See? Now, here, uh, in the Zen tradition, they talk about the great doubt. Um, but that, of course, is the, is the wonder of the philosopher. It's that, you know, it's that curiosity, that really wanting to know if it's really true. 
And you have to enter into that situation with that open mind, with uh, that possibility, and also the possibility of failure. And that's why the spiritual life can sometimes be a little frightening. Um, but when doubt comes from another centre, when it comes from uh, fear, fear of the unknown, fear of failure, to be made a fool of, uh, more tangible fears such as the fear of getting caught up in a sect. You know, sometimes you get aversion because you were part of a religion in your early life as a child and you hated it and you never want to be part of anything like that again. Um, so there are many reasons why this negativity can arise and it manifests as doubt manifests as doubt I remember once there was a, a woman came I was in Sri Lanka at the time and a, a western woman came and she began by asking questions about Buddhism giving me the impression that she was truly interested in what, in what we were discussing as, you know, as an exploration and then at some point in the conversation, it sort of turned and it became sort of accusatory. <laughs> so you believe this, do you? Uh, and in the end, the, the statement was, oh, well, all religions are the same. And she walked away. I felt a little abused, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> but I refrained from throwing the brick. Now, the Buddha himself had a real bad attack of doubt, right there under the Bodhi tree. He'd made this big decision, having, having tried all the uh, stuff that the, those ages were able to give him. He um, worked with all those teachers who were all renowned and all revered. He'd uh, tried, he'd, he'd probably, uh, probably worked with the Jain leader, the Mahavira. Uh, definitely he tried those self-mortification exercises. So whatever society had to offer as a spiritual path, uh, he tried, and he found them all wanting. They, they didn't actually answer his question of, you know, is there an end to suffering? Right? We've all got our spiritual questions somewhere hidden in us. Who am I? What is this? What am I here for? You know, does anybody really love me? And all that, <laughs> all that sort of silly stuff. And for the Buddha, for the Buddha, it was, you know, why am I suffering? Why is there suffering? Why, you know? And remember, in those days, the idea of suffering was entwined with the idea of constant rebirth. It was a horrific vision to have to keep coming back as a human being and being born, and then the sicknesses and the work and the death over and over again. And depending on what did a person. Uh, re take rebirth as a cow or a dog or a human being what was the what was the mechanism had it anything to do with morality at all some people didn't think so some people thought it was just fate if you went down one side of the Ganges creating mayhem murder thievery and you came up the other side with tremendous acts of compassion and love it didn't make a blind bit of difference you'd still be born as a pig so <laughs> And that was it, you see. There was no, there was no understanding, no general philosophy, which, which appealed to him. I mean, there were obviously teachers who had their own ideas, who were quite happy with them. 
But he ended up with this uh, total dissatisfaction. And if you can imagine, if you can imagine this overpowering question, and he can't answer it, and then he, he has this little insight, if you remember, which, you know, which, uh, you know about remembering his childhood and that, that frame of mind, the curiosity. And he sits under the tree and Mara appears. And what's his question? Who are you to sit under that tree? Who the hell are you? Who the hell are you to question all these teachers? What do you think you are, Big Ed? See? <laughs> and, all, and all things came. Depression, anger, fear, the whole lot just raised upon him. But uh, luckily by then, he knew what to do. Okay? Just sit, watch, and let them come. So it wasn't as though the Buddha, as a Bodhisattva, as somebody seeking enlightenment, was free of doubt. It remains right there to the end. So we can define faith as um, not as, as a belief at all, anything to do with that, but more as trust, confidence, confidence. It's normally a much better translation, sadha, to, uh, to translate it as confidence, to put one's trust in. And if you think about it, it's the starting point of any, anything we do. If you take a job, you've got to have confidence that you can do it. Yeah? If you form a partnership or a relationship, you've got to have a certain faith in the other person. They're not going to strangle you in the middle of the night. Or worse. Huh? I have these evil thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your doors locked. <laughs> and of course you have to uh, trust the teacher. You have to give that certain confidence. So in the commentarial literature, it talks about confidence and trust being a characteristic, characteristic of, of faith. So now how does, this, how does this faith arise in us? How, how did it arise in us? But remember that in all, in all these matters human, there's always the head and the heart. See? And faith, faith uh, arises when both move, the one perhaps before the other. In terms of those of us who are more headbound, uh, often it's something that we read. And when we read something, uh, some Buddha's words, there's that feeling of, well, this is true. This strikes a bell. And that's, that's known in the literature as received knowledge. So as we receive that knowledge, you see, there grows within us that confidence. So there's some sort of link, you see, and with that confidence that arises, that enthusiasm, you see, to read a bit more. But so long as it remains at that level, it's always somebody else's knowledge. It's always somebody else uh, that knows it. Even though I've heard it, it's not my own. Uh, I don't know whether you've had the experience, but um, like for instance, uh, when I was reading a lot about modern science, while I was reading Einstein's Law of Relativity, I swear I understood it. But when somebody asked me to t tell them what it was, I couldn't remember a thing. Couldn't have said it at all. <laughs> so this for me was a very sharp example of the difference between received knowledge and knowledge which I have through my own intellectual reasoning. 
And that's the next part. The next part is to take the Dharma, to take the teaching, and to think about it, to mull it over in the mind until it becomes our thinking the way that we understand. But even that really doesn't take us to any greater depth than, than, than just that sort of personal understanding at the intellectual level. Unfortunately, uh, that intellectual understanding can seem so deep, can seem so accurate, that uh, a person can easily mistake that for true knowledge. There was a monk in the Buddha's time who was like that. He was very fluent in the Dharma, really impressed people. But the Buddha called him empty, empty putilla. That's what he called him. He said, come here, empty putilla. <laughs> he said, sounds good, but you know nothing. Nothing at all. Empty. And in the literature, the intellectual, the person who uh, thinks they know, thinks they've really experienced things because they know it, it's considered a disease, an incurable disease. It's a disease that's caused by medicine. So here you are taking medicine and it's causing you disease. Well, we know all about that from our modern medicine. But that's what it describes intellectual pride as. And in our own uh, you know, Christian uh, mythology, there is the great uh, story of Lucifer, you see, and the fall of Lucifer, the bearer of light. So we have to go beyond that sort of intellectual knowledge to something experiential. And that's really the purpose of Vipassana. So in Vipassana, this effort to leave the thinking mind behind. Right? Now, if, you, if we have an understanding that that which knows, that which understands, is an intuitive intelligence, actually it's the only intelligence we have. It has to express itself. The intelligence has to express itself. And it expresses itself through thought. In mostly in things like our philosophy and science. And then it expresses itself through the heart into, into all our art and music and all that. And it expresses itself through the body in the intelligence of an athlete. These are all expressions of this intelligence that we have. And... Our meditation is trying to abstract, is trying to uh, disembed that intelligence from its confusion with thought. So the intellectual here, who thinks that because they can understand it so well, they must be enlightened, is a person who has failed to separate out that intuitive intelligence from thought. There's a confusion there. And of course our society supports that. All our education is about being rational, about being scientific. It's all thought-based, or at least a lot of it is. So this direct experience is something that we're trying to get through our meditation. And that direct experience, of course, brings the, what you might call, immature faith, which we've had that enthusiasm, that feeling, oh, this is true from something that we hear to something that now we understand to something that now we truly experience. And as we pass through those stages, you can see that faith is going to become more and more solid, more and more unshakable. Because now at the experiential level, it's our personal experience. It's not the Buddha's anymore. It's not, it's not the teacher's anymore. We know. We've been there. Got the T-shirt. Wrote the book. 
So that sort of experiential um, learning is, is a quantum leap. It's a different way of understanding. It's direct. It's not second-hand. Huh? It's lived. It's not imagined. Yeah. So, for instance, you might meet somebody who, say, knows a hell of a lot about America. They can tell you a hell of a lot about America. The films they've seen, the soaps, the books they've read, etc., etc. But, but you'll find another person who's done that, but also been there. And their description of America will have that difference to it. The difference of somebody who's actually been there. Yeah. Met the natives. So the agent of that, uh, bringing that intellectual knowledge, that understanding, into a personal experience is this vipassana. And the constant effort to be mindful in daily life. Yeah? Don't confuse mindfulness in daily life with vipassana as a practice. In vipassana, it's a specific time when you're really trying to see the three characteristics. Yeah? It's a specific time when you're trying to do that. Have the faith. See, this is where faith comes in. That This intelligence now understands. You don't have to keep saying, oh, look at that change. Oh, there it is, changing again. You don't have to keep saying, you just keep doing what you're doing with mindfulness. And it's as though within that, within that field of calm mindfulness, every so often, a little understanding may arise. So that the change in the way that we experience things, the change in the way that we understand life, is gradual, not sudden. And this business of uh, that process of hearing something, making it our own, seeing it for ourselves, is not something that just happens as a sort of one wheel going round. It continues to happen all the time. Throughout your spiritual life, you'll hear something new, a way something's been said, you know, and then you'll think about it, and then it comes back, and then you'll see it in your meditation or in your daily life. There are always these little insights. In that sense, you can say that spiritual insights uh, are never-ending, really. See, I, I, would, uh, I would argue that even though the Buddha may have had the fullness of the knowledge about everything that we need for liberation. You can see from the way he taught that his next task was to communicate this to people. And in the early scriptures, what you find is this very easy way of talking. There's not so much, you know, there's not four of these and ten of those and one of those. <laughs> it's not been formalized. And it's only later, after he's done... Uh, years of teaching that his disciples actually begin to formalize the, uh, the teaching for him. And then you end up with these, four of these, ten of those. <laughs> Which all makes sense, you know. Do to me anyway. So in this way, our faith, as it were, spirals. Spirals upward, you see. You can't, you're going round that circle all the time. Now, at the same time as that intellectual understanding is coming, remember the heart is also involved. So you always get this feeling of lift, of comfort, uh, devotion, dedication, perseverance, a lightness, a joy. It's, in the commentaries they talk about it as being bright faith. It brings an enthusiasm. You really want to go for it. See, that's, the, that's the effect 
of uh, faith. And uh, there's that desire often to express that in some form of uh, ritual or ceremony. And we'll come to that later. But uh, this process can also begin with the heart. can also begin with the heart. Even in the Buddha's time, uh, King Bimbisara was looking out of his window one day and espied this monk walking around doing an arms round. And something about his uh, composure, his posture, the way he was, inspired the king. And he asked, who, who is that uh, monk out there, you see? And of course it turns out to be the Buddha. And... <laughs> He was quickly converted to the Buddha's understanding of things and became a lifelong supporter. So sometimes, you know, it's what you see. It's that, it's that contact with a human being which is really touching us at the heart level. And the understanding comes later. I met somebody in Czechoslovakia, actually. I was invited to teach out there because there's a, a monk out there whom I know. And he said that he was standing by a bus stop and... Um, he just noticed that everybody in the bus stop was jumping up and down and moving about and yattering away and all that. And there was this monk who happened to be his friend <laughs> standing there looking very poised with his umbrella. And it drew him. He thought, well, now that's interesting. You know, like, you know, where does that calmness come from? Where does that poise come from? And uh, in very much the same way as Bimbisara, he, he introduced himself and became a disciple. Nobody's done that to me yet. <laughs> but I'm working on it. So when, uh, when faith arises too, there comes with it that sort of clarification, an opening, a possibility. Yeah. If, if you've struggled a lot with doubt, if you've um, been through a period where you've been in that state of not knowing what to do, I'm talking here now specifically um, spiritually but it can happen in all uh, forms of life and you've been through this real state of not knowing and you've written these lists you've all done that I think yeah A and B fallen against and you've sort of woken up in the night thinking oh what am I going to do what am I going to do when uh, faith when faith comes when that insight comes then there's that enormous feeling of relief comes with it as the path seems to just open up in front of you. I mean, just in my own personal experience, there was, you know, once I left uh, the religion of my fathers, as, <laughs> as my uncle said, looking at me with daggers. Uh, uh, Catholicism. So I went through this very long period of wandering through various uh, mental states. Generally, I would, describe, I would describe myself as an existentialist, which simply meant that uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> but I knew I was alive, and uh, it seemed to me that I was going to die, which is basically the existential position. And uh, when I came across meditation... Uh, there was that sort of instinctual feeling that this was going to you know, get me out of all my problems. And so eventually uh, I ended up uh, taking Jukai, which is the lay ordination ceremony at Throssell Hall Abbey in Northumberland. Do you know that place? Mm, very lovely. 
And there came that sort of ecstatic feeling, really, of sort of arriving home. Hmm. But um, that needn't be like that. I mean, it can just be a slow awakening and then just suddenly finding yourself practicing in a certain way. Hmm? So that sense of clarification, that sense of uh, something just falling away, all those doubts falling away, and just seeing the path quite clearly. <clears throat> the commentaries talk about that as the function of faith. That's what it does. And it has a lovely image of the water-purifying gem. So the universal monarch, who runs like an alter ego of the Buddha throughout the scriptures, because remember that if he hadn't have taken up the spiritual path to become fully awakened he would have become a universal monarch. And he has these seven gems. A lovely consort, of course. A treasurer, a general, and so on. And one of them is this water-purifying gem. So when he trundles off with his army, he has to cross these rivers, and they get all muddied, and he puts this gem in it, and lo and betide, as the water-purifying gem of the universal monarch, thrown into water causes solids, alluvia, water weeds and mud to subside and makes the water clear, transparent and undisturbed so faith arises, discards the hindrances, causes the corruptions to subside, purifies the mind and makes it undisturbed. The mind being purified, the aspirant of the spiritual family gives gifts, observes the precepts, performs the duties of apostata, which is the committed practitioner, and commences bhavana the development of spiritual virtues. Thus faith should be known to have purifying as its function. Now that's interesting because with that clarification, with that, with that uh, seeing, there comes this aspiration. And that's the other function of faith. When you see the path, you aspire to it. Yeah? You want to follow, you want to do it. And that brings up these qualities of uh, rapture, uh, you know, enthusiasm. Yeah. And remember that this is a cyclic thing. It's not as though that's how it remains, because when you start practicing, as you know, it gets hard, and then you get depressed, and then you have to read a few more books and inspire yourself. <laughs> so there is that constant effort to raise that uh, that aspiration. You see. So if the characteristic of faith is trust and confidence and its function is to clarify and inspire, so this leads to its manifestation. And its manifestation is the commitment, the decision. Yeah. So you can be there, but if you never actually make the commitment, then nothing happens. Nothing happens at all. Now, you can see from that, you can see from this description of trust, of confidence clarity, inspiration and finally commitment finally that commitment the will goes in to do eh? if you understand that as faith if you understand that as the meaning of sadda you see then you can understand why it has such a pride of place in the Buddha's teachings it begins first the, the spiritual faculties faith, effort awareness, concentration and wisdom here, wisdom is more this intuitive intelligence. So faith stands as the base, you see, 
You move off faith into that commitment. Your effort, your awareness, your concentration is your practice and the insights arise. Without the faith, faith is always coupled with that wisdom. If you don't have faith, you don't look, the wisdom doesn't arise. So that faith is something which is supporting your whole practice. If that faith begins to, begins to shake because of doubt, then you withdraw the energy from your intelligence. It just, it, just, it just funnels it away and you just end up a shivering mess. When we begin to practice like that and we begin to have these experiences, no matter how little that they might be into the nature of things, this faith, based on that uh, experience, moves towards what's known as a, as, a, as a strength. So the Buddha uses two words for these very same faculties, faith, effort, awareness, concentration and wisdom. The first is that they are factors, they are uh, spiritual faculties, right? They're faculties. It's like your arms are faculties. Yeah? Your faculties. But when, they, when you begin to have these insights, they turn into powers. They can't be shaken. And when a person actually intuits Nibbana, then that faith is said to be utterly unshakable. Utterly unshakable. And that's one of the reasons why, once we've intuited Nibbana, the path becomes very direct not only because we see where the end point is much more clearly, but because there is that underlying unshakable faith. Doubt disappears. It's one of the qualities of somebody who is called a sotapanna, somebody who enters the stream. Doubt in the Buddha's teaching disappears because now it's not the Buddha's teaching, it's your experience. It's as simple as that. But, um, sorry, and then... Then uh, he has an interesting, there's an interesting uh, scripture here. And it's an early one, I think. It is an early one. And here he puts faith into what I was chanting this morning, the wheel of the dependence origination, which some of you will know. And this is the way he describes it here. He says, with ignorance as approximate cause, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as proximate cause, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as proximate cause, birth comes to be. With birth as proximate cause, unsatisfactoriness. With unsatisfactoriness as proximate cause, faith. With faith as proximate cause, gladness. And so it goes on, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration. With these as proximate cause, concentration as proximate cause, knowledge and vision. With that there becomes disenchantment, dispassion, liberation and final knowledge now ignorance is that state of not knowing ignorance is that, that position of don't know now because of that position of don't know and we make this mistake we create all these mental states that we're suffering from yeah? that's, that's where they arise from this mistake what is the mistake? the mistake is to believe that this world is where we're going to find uh, a perfect peace, a perfect happiness. So we, we're investing in the world, which is transient, which is insubstantial, and because of that, we keep, we keep losing, because it won't give. Right? It, it's a bad investment. So that's what we mean by 
what, we, what the word volitional formations is, it's just your thoughts and your emotions. All your thoughts and your emotions are, have been developed by ourselves. And because of this, consciousness arises. So in the morning when you wake up, you're waking up from a position of not knowing. And you're waking up into a mental state and consciousness arises. Yeah? And if you, if, you, if you catch that in the morning and just recognize that, you never decided in the evening that you'd wake up depressed. You've just woken up depressed. You never decided to wake up full of beans. You just do it. <laughs> You're there. And that shows you that these volitional formations are conditions over which we have very little powers. Now, as consciousness, there comes this birth. So that's the birth into the present moment. I'm giving you a, a more momentary explanation of this wheeler-dependent origination rather than what would be a more classical explanation of three lives because it works much more for us when we see it as a momentary thing, moment to moment. And then you see, with birth, with that birth into life, we begin to see its unsatisfactory nature. See, that's the first thing. We're up against the unsatisfactory nature of life. And then when we, when we begin to investigate the causes of that unsatisfactoriness, faith arises. In other words, faith that is, it arises because we can see a way out of that. And then there comes this sequence of gladness. So it's a lifting of the heart, rapture, tranquility, calmness, happiness. And in that milieu, in that environment, it's easy to concentrate. So with that, the knowledge arises, the vision of how it really is, these three characteristics. With that, there comes this disenchantment. I love that word. Disenchantment. To be disenchanted. Because we are enchanted, aren't we? One of my... Uh, one of my big horrors will be the disappearance of the Dixon's chain from the high street. <laughs> because whenever I walked into Dixon's, I went into this dream state. <laughs> and looking at all these gadgets, and oh, God, I won't be able to do it anymore. So you see, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> With that disenchantment, there comes the dispassion. Dispassion. Yeah, dispassion and then that liberation and the final knowledge so here in this particular recension of the, of the dependent origination he's putting faith right there which takes, takes this run through all this beautiful stuff to liberation and that's why I say in your meditation when, when the beautiful state comes you know when suddenly there comes to you that calmness and the peace and the joy See, be careful that you don't get lost in it. Let it run. Let it run through these little stages as far as it wants to go. But you keep your attention on that process. And then the knowledge comes. Fine, this is beautiful stuff, but it's not me. It's not mine. Yeah? So once we've uh, got this faith, we have to be careful uh, to support it. So what are those things that support our faith? Well, <clears throat> interestingly enough, the Buddha puts good companionship as really of utmost importance. He talks about it being the whole of the spiritual livelihood, 
good companionship. Ananda, you see, who's, who was his constant companion for, I think, the last 20 years of his life, uh, says to him one day that he thinks that uh, good companionship is about half the spiritual livelihood. And the Buddha says, oh, no, 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 no. He says, the whole of spiritual livelihood. Not so, Ananda. This is the entire life, Ananda. That is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. When a disciple has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, all you have to do is consider the people who've, uh, uh, who've influenced you in your life, for good and bad. Your benefactors, your friends, things, you know, things that you've done which you might not have done without other people. Even here in this hall, you see, the dependence that we have, that other people are here supporting us. This is difficult to do on your own. And I'd feel absolutely stupid giving this speech. <laughs> <laughs> See, I wouldn't be able to develop my understanding were it not for, for people coming along to uh, be patient. So, uh, good companionship. And um, for us as spiritual uh, the spiritual side of us. So we've all got these different sides, the work side, French side, social side. When it comes to the spiritual side, um, you know, people tell me they come to courses like this and when they go home, there's nobody around. You know, they, they live in a place where there just aren't any meditators, there's no interest. And there's that sense of isolation, that sense of not being supported. So uh, in our lives, it's, it's important to find other people even if, even if we only meet once a month, who sit together, even if it's only sit in silence or listen to a tape or do something. I've always uh, considered myself you know, really lucky because at the time when this interest came, I was in Birmingham. And uh, I wrote to the Buddhist Society in my desperation and said that I needed to go to Japan to meditate. And they wrote back and gave me a letter with 21 reasons why I shouldn't go. <laughs> which at first was rather depressing but then they also said why don't you get in touch with Throstlehole Abbey the abbey I've mentioned up in Northumberland and I did and it turned out that you know, the bus ride away was dear Vajira who introduced me to her horror I call her my spiritual mother <laughs> and it was after that, that uh, and just to have that person there with her regular meetings to go there you know tremendous support Later on, I, uh, I um, defected and went over to Theravada and met uh, another teacher who'd moved into Birmingham, uh, a Burmese monk. And just the ability to go to a Vihara, you know, once, twice a week, was enormously supportive. So when the Buddha says that uh, companionship is important, you know, really take it to heart. And if you find yourself in a place where there is no other, you know, where there isn't a group, where there is, start one. It's easy enough. You put an ad in the paper and sit there, wait for somebody to come. <laughs> <laughs> if they tell you to teach me, they can't teach, you know, just, just, sit, just sit here with me. <laughs> uh, and, I, uh, and to tell you how lucky I was, in the publication of uh, the Buddhist Directory, which is published by the Buddhist Society of London, at that time, in, in, the, in the middle, late 70s, there were only 40, 40 to 50 centres in the whole of UK. 
The last publication had 450 plus. So I've always considered myself uh, rather lucky. And that's the same. He also, the Buddha talks about the importance of a teacher. He calls the teacher the Kalyanamitta, the good friend, the spiritual friend. It's important to have somebody who at least is half a step or one toe ahead. It helps. Um, and remember that uh, a teacher isn't a teacher in vipassana or a teacher in Buddhism isn't there to make you happy, isn't there to comfort you. It's just there to point the way. Yeah, not to say that a teacher might not comfort us. Um, or be compassionate <laughs> but it is, it is a case of some, an instructor someone who's actually pointing the way for us to follow the danger of course with a, with a teacher is that you, you, you can tend to idolise them and I've definitely fallen into that sort of you become a sort of groupie in the last hours of the Buddha, some young monk looked upon him with sort of glazed eyes. He sent him packing off into the forest. Go away. <laughs> so it's a case of um, not falling into the error of idolizing uh, a teacher, uh, but also not falling into the other area of uh, sort of carping criticism, which is destructive, you know. And there's always that teaching, you know, to remain, uh, to remain critical in that good sense. One receives the teaching, one tries it out, and if it doesn't work, well, you move on. It's often the case that we outgrow a teaching. You know, we move on to, to another person who we feel is, uh, you know, is pushing us, making us work a bit harder. I've always thought that the sign of a good teacher, not just a spiritual teacher, but any, any teacher, is, is to be able to rejoice in their students' um, uh, you know, success, but more to make themselves redundant. Yeah? If, a teacher, if a teacher is gathering students to make themselves feel good, run for it. And that's one of those areas where we can become confused between somebody who's wise and somebody who's charismatic. So charisma, you know, love, all that sort of stuff, that, that you, can, you can develop just through the practice of metta. But you can be as thick as two short planks <laughs> and not know anything. But, you know, anybody comes to you gets bathed in this love. <laughs> You have to be careful. <laughs> the Buddha here um, gives instructions on how we should approach a teacher. So here one has faith in the teacher and visits him. And when he visits him, he pays respect to him. When he pays respect to him, he gives ear. And one who gives ear, hears the Dharma. Having heard the Dharma, he memorizes it. He examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. And when he examines their meaning, he develops an intellectual acceptance of these teachings. When he has gained intellectual acceptance of these teachings, zeal springs up in him. See, that's the faith, the zeal. And when zeal has sprung up, he applies his will. Having thus applied, applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, 
He strives, resolutely striving. So that's the meditation. And he realizes the ultimate truth and sees it by penetrating it with intuitive intelligence. So there's your progress, isn't it? So, um, again, you know, it's, it's just fortune, a little bit of fortune, a bit of good luck, to find a teacher who uh, resonates with you. And uh, just a little caveat, really. Remember that as we're all teachers to some extent. We're all exemplars. As soon as you say to somebody, oh, well, I, uh, you know, I practice uh, Buddhist meditation, and then next day they find you, you know, in the gutter, completely drunk. <laughs> it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't inspire. <laughs> So, the, so apart from uh, a teacher, uh, a companion, a good companionship with a teacher, the next, the next great support is the way we live our lives. So don't forget that. Right livelihood, you know, the Eightfold Path, the right understanding, the right attitude, but then there's the right speech, the right action, and the right livelihood. You've got to make sense of your livelihood. You know? Uh, you've got to, we've got to make sense of it in, a spiritual, in spiritual terms. If we're already in a compassionate job, you know, such as an obvious thing like uh, social work or teaching or nursing or something like that, then that's fairly easy. But if you end up in a job which is very humdrum, like licking postage stamps, something like that, you know, <laughs> something, something really sort of banal and, 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 and ridiculous, somehow you've got to make sense of that. Now, when I was, uh, uh, you know, a young student, a schoolboy, um, you know, we used to get these summer jobs, and I ended up in this uh, cake factory. And I was working with all these women who were incredibly fast. And there was a machine which swung these cakes round. And as the cake came round, these women did enormously quick things with them. <laughs> and as it swung round to me, I was supposed to slip this cherry on top. <laughs> well, they were very sympathetic. Very comforting. Don't worry, love, you'll be all right. <laughs> and at first, when I, was, at first when, I, when I did that, it was a sort of relief from all that intellectual work, you know. It was quite lovely. But then, of course, after a couple of days, there came that, 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 that mind-numbing boredom, you know, that, that, that crushing boredom of watching this cake come round. <laughs> <laughs> And the pain was terrible. <laughs> of course, now, uh, now that I've you know, done this meditation, this is an enormously wonderful occasion for developing concentration and insight. Because here I am, having to concentrate exactly on this, you know, to get that cherry right on the center point. And this stuff's whizzing past. See? Cake after cake. <sighs> The opportunities I've missed. <laughs> so anything we do, so long as it's not immoral, so long as it's not unethical, of course, uh, can be seen as something that we can work on as part of our practice. Hmm? So there are these those three things which support our faith. You see, the community, 
the teacher and our actual livelihood to make sure that uh, the way we live uh, that also includes you know ethics that also includes you know moral our moral life which is not just the negative side not to do eh? but also the positive side the love the compassion all that area sympathetic joy so now uh, we have to be also aware of the dangers well some of them are quite simply the opposite of what we talked about not having good companionship lack of a teacher lack of practice and all that sort of stuff sceptical doubt you know um, confusing belief confusing faith with belief all that sort of stuff so some things are, are quite quite obvious in terms of what undermines um, In, just in terms of right livelihood, not to forget the effect of poor behavior. So the Buddha actually says to his monks, he says, you know, when you behave badly, this neither raises faith in the faithless, nor increases faith in the faithful. Rather, it keeps the faithless without faith and harms those who are faithful. So, it, uh, you know, what we do affects other people. And it also affects ourselves because when we, when we behave like that, we begin to undermine our own sense of self-respect, self-esteem. And that cuts into our confidence, you know. And then we start saying we're not up to it. And then you abandon the path. So all this, all this area of ethics and good behavior is also, you know, very much supportive to the spiritual path. But uh, there are two things which are very undermining. The first one is envy and jealousy. So be very careful that you don't compare your spiritual probes to anybody else because... Everybody is so different. They've all got their own path. They've all got their own little peculiar things to have to go through. And, and you know, if somebody, what we can say to ourselves, if we see somebody suddenly zoop up and start levitating, we can say, well, surely in their past lives they must have done a lot of work. <laughs> but if, if you find envy and jealousy come, you know, just like in meditation, just note that, you see, because that's enormously corruptive. In some traditions, like in the Throstle Hall tradition, and also the Samatha tradition in Manchester, you ca- you're, you're asked not to speak to others about your spiritual practice. Okay? Because it awakens jealousy and envy and all that sort of stuff. And it's very harmful. And the other side of that, of course, is that uh, one compares oneself with others, thinking that one is tremendously advanced. Then you sort of lift yourself up, you know, into this wonderful overestimation of achievement. And there we have, of course, the fall of Lucifer. So also be careful of that. Now, when these thoughts come up, when that sense of comparison comes up, you see, there's the reaction sometimes of, oh, that's shameful, that's terrible, I didn't think that. You see, there's a pushing away. But what the Vipassana is teaching us is to let those thoughts come. And no matter how nasty we feel when they come, no matter that self-judgment comes and loss of self-esteem stay with that you see have the confidence that if you just give these mental states the opportunity to express themselves they will blow themselves out that's the confidence you've got to have and that means opening up to all the worms and snakes and crocodiles that happen to be inside us metaphorically speaking of course (laughs) The other great danger is expectation. Beware of expectation. You see, it's natural for hope to arise. Hope is that hope arises from that faith and from that knowledge. When when we've begun to meditate and we've we've begun to see the path and it's becoming clearer and clearer, 
we also see the end of it. We also see that there is this possibility of the end of suffering, or at least things getting better. And that's the hope, you see. Now that hope becomes corrupted as soon as you put any idea as to what that might be in the future. Worse if you put a time limit on it. See? And then there you are coming up to 2010 and you just haven't moved. You're still as miserable as you were in 2006. Very depressing. So be careful of that. In... Um, in Buddhist understanding, there was this um, uh, idea of the Ichikantas. Uh, this was a, uh, a heresy which arose in late Buddhism. It was understood that there were some people who were so thick and stupid that they would never be able to get out of the round of rebirths. And they were called the Ichikantas, which means forever going on, never stopping, Ichi. Very itchy. Uh, which, of course, is not the Buddha's understanding. Yeah? The Buddha's understanding was that once you see the path, you're on the way out, no matter how long it takes. Time, in this sense, is irrelevant. So long as there's a self in Buddhist understanding, there will be existence. It'll always seek existence, no matter where. Whether you want to believe in, in huge cosmologies of other world systems, or whether you want to believe that you just get, you just get reborn here, it doesn't matter. Uh, in terms of, in terms of, don't take this as as a belief. Yeah, you don't have to believe that. It's just the understanding. So long as there's a self, there will be an existence. So once we've risen, once we've got this, it's known as Dhamma Chaitana in this tradition. The will for the truth, that that determination to go for the truth. Once that's arisen, uh, it will bring its own. Uh, its own final uh, flowering. See, don't put a time on it. Don't, don't do that, yeah? And don't think about what it might be. Just day by day, day by day. In the Mahayana tradition, which some of you know, it's known as the bodhicitta, see, the heart that seeks enlightenment. So what happens to um, spiritual hope is that it becomes concretized. Then we start expecting results, Yeah? And what does that lead to? It leads to disappointment. It leads to disappointment. And that disappointment leads to loss of faith, loss of practice, the abandoning of the life. And then there comes that, um, that even though we know that others have succeeded, see, then we tend to start blaming the system. It doesn't work for us, or it doesn't work, or at least it doesn't work for us. Or we blame ourselves. It works for everybody else, but not me. I'm not up to it. I'm special in that way. So here the Buddha's warning us about the gradual nature of the path, you see, not to make that mistake. Hmm? I do not say, disciples, that the attainment of profound knowledge comes straight away. Nevertheless, disciples, the attainment of profound knowledge comes by a gradual training, a gradual doing, a gradual course. And how, disciples, does the attainment of profound knowledge come by means of gradual training, gradual doing, a gradual course? As it is, one who has faith draws close. Drawing close, she sits down nearby. Sitting nearby, she lends an ear. Lending an ear, she hears the Dharma. Having heard the Dharma, she remembers it. She tests the meaning of things she has borne in mind. 
and whilst testing the meaning, the things are approved of. There being approved of things, desire is born. With desire born, she makes the effort. Having made effort, she weighs it up. Having weighed it up, she strives, being self-resolute. She realizes for herself the highest truth itself and penetrating by means of wisdom, she sees. See? So you can see in just the way he's describing it, this constant effort you know, not to give up. Hmm? And when we, when we fall, when we fall back a bit and that disappointment comes, so you stay with that, you stay with that, see? And then you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and you start all over again. And what we come to realize is, there is no other choice. What other choice have you got? Do you want to go back to being an unaware slob? (laughs) So when the Buddha talks about abandonment, the wilderness of the heart, this lovely discourse on the wilderness of the heart, the wilderness of the heart, the one who has not abandoned these should, should... That one who has not abandoned these should come to growth, increase, and fulfillment in the Dharma and the Vinaya is not possible. These wildernesses, shackles being doubtful, uncertain, undecided, indiffident about the teacher, the Dharma, the Sangha, the training, and being angry and displeased with one's companions in the holy life. See? Somebody who gets involved in that in that diffidence, in that lack of decision, uncertainty about the teacher, the Dharma. That's not, that's not, that's the, the, the Buddha. The Dharma, the Sangha, the training, and being angry and displeased with other people who are, who are companions in the holy life, they, they're on the way out. <laughs> Down, never out. Excuse me. So here the word Vinaya, just, just take that to mean the practice of virtue. So, gee, time goes on, excuse me. So um, we basically understood that faith is not to be confused with belief. It's to do with confidence. It's to do with attitude. It's an attitude. We know how to nurture it by reading, listening, thinking, good companionship, but above all, the practice, both sitting every day. We know what we've got to be wary of, doubt, comparison, judging, expectation. And we also know the place of faith in the Buddha's teaching. And it may, it may be that <clears throat> we come to some point in our journey where we feel we want to make that commitment. And that's where these rituals come in, you see. And I'll be talking a bit more about that uh, another time. But a ritual is that moment in time when you make that decision. And like all things human... To make a decision fully weighted, you need witnesses. Think about it. A child needs some sort of ceremony to be invited into the human community. When we form a relationship, we need some sort of ceremony whereby we tell other people that this is our decision. Whether it's, you know, just a few people having a drink in a pub or a huge royal wedding it doesn't matter it's, it's that business of some point in time when you make it known and it's the same with death isn't it death is another great ritual where we need to be together 
to say goodbye. You know, it's difficult to be on your own to do that. So in the spiritual life, you may find that you come to this point where you actually want to make that decision of commitment. And that's when you'll seek some sort of uh, little ritual, some sort of way of doing it. And I'm hoping that by the end of this week, when we do a little, uh, when we do our performance, uh, you'll all feel, you'll all feel confident to actually take the refuges and precepts at your level of understanding. That's the important thing. There's no objective standard. There's no objective standard. So when we talk about taking refuges and precepts, it's a very personal thing. And it's not as though one takes them for life. That grows upon you. And, it only, and it's much later on in our spiritual journey that you might say to yourself, this is it, I'm not moving off this path. But uh, the description of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha can be as wide as you want it to be. You see? So the Buddha is not just the Buddhist Buddha, it's, it's just that within us which is to be enlightened. And the Dharma is any teaching which is going to take us there. And the Sangha is that community which is going to help us. So it can be as wide as the whole world and it can be as narrow as, um, as, as a footpath. So uh, I shall leave it there because I've gone on a bit. And uh, tomorrow... Um, I'll talk about what it is that we actually are putting faith in. All right? A sort of tour of the Buddhist teaching. So if we just sit in, in a bit of silence for a minute and just let whatever thoughts arise, if any... So the Buddha asks us to take charge of our own spiritual life. We have to take full responsibility for it. It's we who have to raise our own enthusiasm, our own zeal. So I hope my words have been of some use to you. May you be fully liberated sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.